Well, evening, everybody. Good to be with you. Good to see you. Could you turn or swipe to the book of Genesis, chapter 28? Genesis 28. Genesis is one of the easiest books to find. It's the first book. Genesis basically is a word that means beginning. And we are going to be looking at another forerunner, a patriarch, as he's known, Jacob. And we're going to drop right in the middle of Jacob's story. We're going to read probably the most formative, maybe the second most formative experience of his life. And then we're going to talk about what led before and what it means for us tonight. Genesis chapter 28, we're dropping in the middle of the story in verse 10. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep because they didn't have pillows back then so much on the road. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And the angels of God or messengers of God were ascending and descending or coming and going on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. And I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like that of the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Verse 15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, uh, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and he set it up as a pillar and he poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth or a tithe. This is the word of God for the people of God. And we say, Thanks be to God. A couple weeks ago, Nora and I were in the car, and Nora asked me a question. That question was this. Are your old friends surprised that you're a pastor? And I said, why is that? And without missing a beat, she literally said this. Because you were so bad as a kid. And I just was shell-shocked that my precious little daughter that has some kind of view of her daddy 
that I was up to no good when I was a kid, and surely all the people that knew me then would never have dreamed that I would be a pastor today. So I told her, well, the thing about it is God loves to use all kinds of people, sweetie, even bad little kids like me. And by the way, I wasn't really bad. I was more like mischievous, okay? And so I had to set the record straight. And this may be why she hasn't asked me any other questions in the last two weeks. I think there's something going on with our earliest forerunners and pioneers of our faith. I think we have a faulty view of the Bible sometimes because we grow up with the illustrated pictures and the greatest hits of their greatest works. But if you were just to read the black and white text of the Bible, you would find that mainly these people are not exactly heroes. And if you read the Bible, you see that most often it's less of a morality tale and more of a reality tale. But therein lies the power and the good news. Doesn't matter how bad they were as kids. Doesn't matter how wrong they tend to get it as adults. God loves to use all kinds of people. Sure, they do heroic things. Sure, they do miraculous and powerful things. But they also portray these people as what they are. Real, imperfect human people who go about real, everyday, imperfect, broken lives. And the miracle is that God uses them and that they still keep walking with him. But even more, God keeps walking with them. Jacob, of the three biggest patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is probably the most wheels off and surprising. And all of his kids' friends, his friends when they were kids, probably would never have believed that he would have had the dream he had or lived the life that he was living. But God has a sense of humor and loves to use people just like Jacob. If you read the Bible, Genesis 1 to 2 starts great. In fact, the word good, it was good, it was good, it was good, is repeated half a dozen times. And then the wheels start to come off in Genesis 3. And then Genesis 3 to 11 is just a downward spiral of humanity. And finally, when it reaches its literal pinnacle in the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, and God has to kind of break up this gang of pride and violence and arrogance again, you're left scratching your head and saying, what is God going to do because it keeps going so wrong? Well, the answer comes in Genesis 12. And the rest of the story from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50 is a story that centers on God's answer to what in the world are we going to do with all this mess? The answer is, He's going to bless a family. And through this family, all families of the world will be blessed. Genesis 12 through 50 tells the story of Abram's family. And then Abram becomes Abraham. And then Abraham has a son, Isaac. And then Isaac has a son, Jacob. Now, they have more kids than just those, but there's this covenant that God makes with Abraham. 
And he says, look up at the stars. You're going to have more kids than you see stars. You're going to see so many kids. And I'm going to make you a great nation. And through your nation, through your family, all nations of the world will be blessed through you. And this gets reiterated and renewed through his promised child, Isaac. And then Isaac hears that promise. You're going to be blessed and you're going to bless all nations through you, and I'm going to give you a place to live and dwell in safety. That promise gets renewed and repeated in Isaac. And then we see that Jacob is born, and we just read that same promise in verses 13 and 14 get renewed and repeated. And there's one thing that all three of these men have in common. They're imperfect and often unfaithful. But also, they have this in common, that God's gracious and always faithful to work with them and keep his promise to bless them so that we all may be blessed too. So what's the big deal with these guys? They trusted God even in the mess of everyday life. And we're going to go back and look at this story again. From Abraham's grandson, Jacob. And two questions are going to emerge as we tell this story. And they're these. Why this guy? And why that place? Two questions are going to emerge. Because this guy is imperfect and often unfaithful. And this place is nondescript. And nobody thought to invite God into it. But God shows up. And so I hope that in reframing these questions with this story, you'll get a sense that, well, if him, why not me? And if there, why not here? I want to reframe our questions, but we've got to rewind a bit. Jacob is a man in perpetual motion. The wheels are always turning. He is always scheming and bargaining. And so Isaac, his dad, with his mom, Rebecca, are pregnant, and we're told in the biblical story that even while these twins were in the womb, they were wrestling. You think my twin nephews wrestle a lot, or your boys wrestle a lot? These dudes, before they were even born, were going at it in the womb. And there was some strange and mysterious destiny pronounced over them that said, the reason that this is so, and the reason why this is so rough, is that there's two nations vying for this kind of greatness and this kind of promise. Because Isaac was a child of promise, and so his child was going to be a child of promise. But the question is, if they're twins, which one? Well, Esau was born first. But right out of the womb, Jacob was trying to get a leg up, and he was named Jacob, heel, some translations say, because he was trying to grab Esau's heel and try to get out first. He doesn't, but even from the womb, there's something about Jacob that is always moving, always turning, always scheming. Sorry, Jacob. His name eventually comes to be something akin to God protects. But for the first bit of his life, they probably walked around saying, you're just a heel, man. You're always trying to nip at somebody's toes and get in front of them. Well, as young men in Genesis 25, Esau, who was the rough and tumble hunter, outdoorsman, 
He returns home, and he is near death. You say you're starving. This man was starving. And of course, wouldn't you know it, Jacob is over there just stirring a nice little pot of stew. And so Esau comes in. He collapses. He sits down in Genesis 25, and he goes, please give me some of that. I'm starving. And Jacob says, yeah, yeah, um, I will, but why don't you sell me your birthright? Now, this is a huge deal. Because the eldest sons get more property, more respect, and he's basically asking him to give him all of this for just a little bowl of soup. He's scheming. Esau at death's door says, well, what good is my inheritance if I'm not alive to get it? So just fine, whatever. Take it. It's yours. Give me the stew. Well, I hope it was good stew. Because the point is made at the end of Genesis that Esau despised his birthright. He cared so little for the big promise of God that he would rather just eat stew. So because it's less a morality tale and more a reality tale, they're just like, look, however shadily he got it, Jacob got it. He got the inheritance. He got something of the property rights of the clan, of those things that were supposed to go to Esau, well, he really did trick him out of it. So we have God working with real people. Later on in Genesis 27, Isaac, their dad, is blind and dying. So he asks for his beloved son Esau to come and make him that meal that he loves so much. And undergirding that phrase is, come to me, my son, let's share a meal because it is time for me on my deathbed to not just give you the birthright you sold, but to give you a blessing. This is another big deal in the ancient world. The blessing is the conferring or the transferring of the leadership clan the administration of the property, like the executor of the will. It's the spiritual mantle of hosting the feasts, running the affairs, um, and, and making sure that the family persists and exists in the way that this patriarch would wish on his deathbed. And ultimately, the blessing is proclaiming the destiny of the promise that God made to their grandpa Abraham. So Isaac says, Esau, it's time. I'm going to bless you, my boy, but go and make us that food that we love, and let's have this special ceremony. Well, his wife, Rebecca, overhears it, and she runs to her favorite son, Jacob, and she says, listen, we've got to act quick. Go grab those goats. We'll make it like he likes it. And he goes, okay. And he goes, but you're going to bring it in there, and you're going to act like Esau, and you're going to get the blessing. And he goes, have you seen us? Because they were the kind of twins that didn't look like twins. And for some reason, not only did he just put on Esau's hair, we're told in the Bible, they looked so unlike each other that he had to put on a pelt of goat on his hands and neck. So Esau was hairy. They did not look like each other. So somehow or another, they're going to fool their dying dad with some goat pelt, some goat meat in his brother's clothes. So you think... The Bible doesn't use real people in real dysfunctional families. Think again and just read the rest of Genesis. So he goes in 
to his blind, dying father. And Isaac is tricked. And Isaac confers the leadership, the property, the destiny onto Jacob. So now Jacob has the stuff, and now Jacob has the promise. He links this destiny to a deceiver. Isaac feels terrible. Esau is livid. It's a terrible and tragic story when Esau returns and he's wailing and he's weeping. He knows he's missed his chance because in the ancient world, there is no takebacks. This is non-transferable. So Jacob runs for his life. And while he's at it, they said, you may as well go that direction to our clan that lives over there. You may as well go find a wife. And in God's irony... And later in the story, you can read how Jacob the trickster gets tricked. Because I think what happens is not only is he running for his life, he's running and walking on a path of formation. Because God is going to get his attention. So it's when he's on the run that he finds himself on the side of the road in the middle of nowhere and there's no rest stop. There's no buckies. And so he grabs a stone and he lays down his head. And he doesn't ask for it. He doesn't look for it. But God peels back the veil of heaven to show this fugitive, trickster, shady, deceiver that schemes and tries to steal. He shows that guy that there's a lot more going on to you, your life, and this world. So this story reframes our questions. Our questions are rightly, why this guy? Why this place? This middle of nowhere, unnamed place, near a named town, but just off the side of the road, why? But when God peels back the veil between heaven and earth, it changes our whys to if. If God can bless and use that guy, can God bless and use me? If God can speak and move in this nondescript, middle of nowhere, on the side of the road place, can God speak and move in my place and in my situation, in my time? If this person, if this place, then can it be me and can it be here? And the answer in this story for us this evening is this. Yes, God meets us as we are and he meets us where we are. And you say, that's just one of those nice preacher things that you say, but you know, I heard in church that you really just got to get your stuff together. And, you know, that song we sang about come just as you are, that's just a nice thing. But really, when you get down to it, you know, no, he doesn't meet us where we are. And I want to tell you that there is no other you that God wants to meet with tonight. There is no other you that God wants to bless, to walk with, or to work with. 
You are not your worst hurt. You are not your worst hang up. You are not your worst habit. God used a man, Jacob, who to this point, we have no indication that he has ever sought God. And we have an indication that this is the first encounter he's ever had with God. This guy was lying and deceitful, and I tried this week to read different commentaries, different stories. I tried to look and find where, you know, he's actually a redeemable guy. No! This guy is a nightmare. And God builds from this family, filled with dysfunction, filled with trickery and treachery and backstabbing. God says, I'm going to bless that family And that guy, so that all of us might be blessed. And isn't it just like God to choose that kind of person to say, if I can do it for him, I can do it for you. If I can reveal myself to him, I can show up and reveal myself to you. I think we have this thought that God really only cares about the 10 years more mature version of me. He wants the 2033 version. He wants the new and improved with the big touch screen in the middle of the console version of me. He wants the version of me that read my Bible more last week. He wants the version of me that prayed longer and more deeply. And he wants the version of me that didn't tell that half-truth. He wants that version of me that's not going back to the same habits of lust or of of anger. He wants the better, more mature version of me. And God wants to grab us by the shoulders and says, I want this you because there is no other you except this one right now. He says, well, don't you want my life to look better? He goes, sure, that's great. I'll invite you to talk to me more. I'll invite you to forgive and live more like my son Jesus. But that life doesn't exist yet either, so I want you right now. But the problem is we're like Jacob. We're in perpetual motion. And our culture reinforces this idea that the you right now is insufficient. So you better buy this, read this, and watch my TikTok video because here's three reasons why you can be the better you. And God says, enough of this. That person doesn't exist. The only life you have to live is this life right now in this moment. Will you wake up and look? Here I am. Our culture has this value of driven achievement and then numbing out. If I can just work and earn and earn, and then when I crash land and I lay my head on a rock in the middle of the road, don't bother me. I just got to get up, lather, rinse, and repeat. And what God wants to do is shake us out of that rhythm and say, let me show you and peel back the veil. There's something more going on. Yeah, you've been working. Yeah, you've been dreaming. Yeah, you've been scheming. But I'm showing you that there is more to your life. There is more to the universe than just driven achievement and numbing out. If you would open your eyes, be present, you see that I'm showing up right here in your midst. Don't miss it. There is no other you that God wants to bless, to walk with or work with, than the you that is sitting here moment to moment. And by the way, you're not your worst hurt, hang up, or habit from the last 10 years. 
You are joined with God through his promise and for his purpose. And if you don't believe me, read the stories I just told you and find that God still labors with and invites us. There's this invitation in Isaiah 33 that says, um, I've been longing to be gracious to you. For in repentance and rest is your salvation. And in returning is your strength. And then he says, but you would have none of it. You say, no, we're going to keep running. We're going to keep doing our own thing. And maybe God thought that that's what Jacob would do. So he finds him in a place where he's all alone, where he's least expecting it. And he's at his lowest point. And there's so much in our life and work and parenting that is leading us to believe that God doesn't want us, that God doesn't want to move. We have to do A, B, and C before we can see his blessing and his movement. Now understand, I'm not saying that you shouldn't try to be formed and to work and to, to grow. That is stupid. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that God will do all those things with you as your raw material right now. He's just asking you to open up to it. Years ago, we did this book study called Growing With, this book by Stephen Powell and Kayla Ardue. And it was a parenting book for our kids in different life stages. And we were doing this, and at the end of every session, we said this mantra that was in that book. And Powell and Ardue say this, no one loves your child the way you do. You are the right parent for your child. You have what it takes to be the best parent for your kid. And so imagine when we're doing this week after week after week, we're reading these chapters, we're unpacking this stuff, we're sharing our heart, and we're talking about how I wish we could do this better, and I wish that this didn't happen this way, and I wish I could hit rewind and try that again. And we would end all of that sharing still in the context of growing and developing and getting better, but we would end it with the realization that no one loves your child the way you do. You're the right parent for your child, and you have what it takes to be the best parent for your kid. That there is something in your raw material that can do the job were you to be more open to what God has. God wants this you. If God can use and bless this person, can God bless and use me? The answer is yes. But it's not just that person, it's also that place. Let's go back to that slide with that big idea because God meets us as we are, but he also meets us where we are. There is no other place that God wants to meet you and show you how the resources of heaven are breaking through. Your everyday life is the place where heaven and earth meet. Understand that where God peels back the veil and shows him, not just a ladder, that's a misnomer. What he's showing him is some ancient um, picture that would have made sense to Jacob. Have you heard the term ziggurat? Imagine a Mayan temple, but smooth and make the edges circular and Bring a staircase that spirals around the temple-like structure. So it's less of a ladder and more of a staircase. And the idea is that the foundation is on our place, the downstairs part of the world. And you could walk upstairs to the second floor of the house, and that's where the deity resides at the top. 
And so his messengers, which is a word for angels, would come and go to say, hey, it's time for dinner. Come on up. Or, hey, don't forget to brush your teeth. Come on up. And the idea is that you could travel from our space to God's space. And so what was fascinating is that if this is where God lives, God lives on the side of a road in the middle of nowhere. Not at the temple with the Mesopotamians down that way. Not over in that direction where the Egyptians and their great pyramids are. He can even be right here. God is in this place. Your everyday life is the place where heaven and earth meet. And heaven is breaking through, showing you that the resources, the coming and going, is right here and right now. I love this from Thomas Merton's journal. Thomas Merton is a big deal to me. He was a Trappist monk, and he wrote this shortly after arriving at his monastery. This Gethsemane is the land where you have given me roots in eternity. This is the burning promised land, the house of God, the gate of heaven, the place of peace, the place of silence, the place of wrestling with the angel. Where's Thomas Merton talking about? He's talking about his house. He's talking about his little nondescript room in the monastery in Kentucky. That place is the burning promised land. That place is the house of God. That place is the gate of heaven, like we hear in Genesis 28. That place is the place of peace. That is the place of silence. That is the place of wrestling with the angel, which is later on in Jacob's story when he has another encounter that forms him and shapes him and takes him down a notch because he's still up to his trickery. The place where he's given Thomas roots in eternity is the place that he spent his everyday life. I love that. I love that. And it just makes me wonder, is my gate of heaven standing in front of my kitchen sink, washing dishes on a Monday when I'm off, listening to way too much of sports radio, the ticket? Holla at me. Is it the time that I turn it down and I say, hey, God, by the way, thanks for waking me up today. Thanks for having a chill morning. Could that be my Gethsemane? Could that be my place by the side of the road? You know what he named that place? You remember? Bethel. You know what the word Bethel means? The house of God. Oh, this is God's house. Right here, if this is the first floor of earth and that's the second floor of heaven, I must have slept in the foyer in God's house. This is Jacob's first direct encounter with God and it expanded his universe. Not just the stories from his old grandpa Abraham or his dad Isaac. Jacob has a personal encounter and the first part of the promise is what I told you earlier. It sounds very familiar. In verses 13 and 14, it is the same thing he told to Abraham. And it's the same thing that he reiterated with Isaac. And it's the same thing that he's going to reiterate with Jacob who, watch, stole it, but God is still going to bless it. God can even work in our imperfect places. 
But the second part in verse 15, that's personal. This is Isaac's own personal custom promise. He says this, I am with you. Second thing he says, I will watch over you. The third thing he says is, I will bring you back to this place, to your house. You know why this is such a big deal? Because Jacob went to sleep thinking he's alone. He stole it, he ran off, he blew it, and then God says, no, I'm with you. You know why that's such a big deal? Because Jacob went to sleep fearing that his life was over because his brother wanted to kill him. And then God says, I will protect you and watch over you. You know why it's such a big deal? Because Jacob went to sleep believing he could never, ever, ever go home again. And then God says, I will bring you back. This is his first direct encounter. Pulls back the veil. He thought he was alone and God was with him. He thought his life was over, but God is watching over him. He went to sleep believing he could never go home and said, God, I'm, 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 I'm done. And God says, no, I'm not done. I'm going to bring you back home. And what happens when God speaks this word over him is unusual because in the ziggurats of his day, they expected gods to show up. They never expected them to speak. So God doesn't just show up at the top of this stairway. He speaks and makes a self-binding promise. Not only is there more going on, and it looks like heaven isn't so far away. It looks like heaven isn't accessible. It's right here. And by the way, I guess earth is not left alone for me to claw my way and achieve my way and steal my way up the ladder. It looks like earth has resources from heaven. It looks like there's a purpose that's given beyond what I can plan and scheme. And this God speaks and makes a self-binding promise. Oh, God is with me. God sees me. God directs my life. And heaven is not far away after all. And so he wakes up and what does he say? Oh, surely God is in this place and I didn't know it. So he names it Bethel, the house of God. And the question then becomes, can everywhere in your life be a Bethel? Can we learn what Jacob learned? Oh, maybe if I had paid attention, I would have seen I was sleeping in God's house. A couple weekends ago, I was in Colorado Springs. Our dear friend Ramon couldn't make it down here, so I went up there and spent a weekend with him at this uh, retreat and big deal for his organization where he was being named something super important. And so we had some time together on Sunday to just hike in the Garden of the Gods. Um, that sounds like a place that Jacob named. This is the Garden of the Gods. And I had this thought because it was quiet and we were crunching gravel and hiking. Because I was with Ramon, I was thinking of how six, seven years ago, we did a two-year cohort together about spiritual formation, and baked within those retreats every week, right in the middle was a six to eight hour time of solitude and silence in the wilderness of California. And I thought about how uh, this hike sounds a lot like those hikes. And then I thought about how our leaders would go to Mount Lebanon, which is decidedly less pretty than Garden of the Gods. But we would still go and be with God, and we would walk up the way, and it would sound like that. And I said to Ramon, I feel like this sound of me walking and crunching on rocks and gravel is what it sounds like to meet God. 
And then today, when Toby showed up but wasn't feeling well and left the clothes closet because we all said, don't get us sick, go rest. I was thinking about how Carla and Toby and Becky and so many of you today, Ashley and Emily and so many of you have, have given your time, not just today, but in this clothes closet. I remember that when Toby was asked, what does heaven smell like? She said, used clothes and fabuloso. Because she was talking about her clothes closet. And so I thought, it sounds like crunching gravel to meet God, yes. But for her, it sounded like something just right here in our neighborhood. And I just wondered, what would it look like if Bethel was my house? What would it mean to pay attention? Jacob didn't go looking for it, but God found him. What if I actually went looking for it? What if I actually didn't have to go to the Garden of the Gods, but what if I could just walk to my backyard? Could heaven sound like washing dishes or sitting in my chair and not just a mountain trail? I'll close with this. Centuries later, Jesus finds himself another group of 12 sketchy guys. And he says, follow me, take on my way. And he's going to expand their universe and peel back the veil of heaven and earth. And he's going to say, actually, the kingdom of God is right here in your midst. One of them, a man named Nathaniel, he hears that the king of this kingdom has emerged from Nazareth. And he goes, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Why that place? So his friend says, well, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Well, Jesus arrives, and he reveals to Nathanael, after he says something personal, now here, mm, here's my guy. This is a Jew of all Jews. You're from the people that's supposed to bless the whole world. And he says, I saw you the other day under that tree. And the same guy that said, why that place? Him? all of a sudden is shook, and he says, my Lord, truly you must be who they say you are. But Jesus didn't just show up. He makes another self-binding promise. He speaks, and he says to Nathaniel this, you believe because I told you I saw you under that tree? You will see greater things than that. And so he added, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Not just on some dream on the side of some road some centuries before, but this living, breathing, walking, talking Bethel right here in front of you. You're going to see even greater things. So your invitation is to keep an eye out for the Bethels. And following Jesus is a sure way to find them. Jacob made a vow and said, my life is going to look different now. Will ours? I pray that God would surprise us with glimpses of heaven, glimpses of his presence, 
so that we would be reminded that we are loved, that we are enough, for he longs to meet us right here where we are in this place and in this time for his glory and our good in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen. May the God of our fathers and mothers, of all the generations who have come before us, meet you and bless you where he finds you. As you walk the varied terrain of the week ahead, may you pause long enough to recognize the presence of the one who walks beside you and give thanks. For surely God is in our everyday places amongst everyday people. May the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit surround you and sustain you. Go in peace.